Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. Well, please be seated. If you have your Bibles, I'll take a few moments to, to draw our attention to Judges chapter 14. You know, last week we looked at the early aspects of Samson's birth and his coming into the world. And, and Judges chapter 13 is such a marvelous chapter, isn't it? I mean, it is rich and it is so full of things about the righteousness of this man and his family, his mother and his father and their prayers. After that, things go south for a little bit with regard to Samson. But by the end of his life, or by chapter 16, we'll see some good things again. But right now, we're going to focus on some challenging aspects. And I really enjoy this song because it fits exactly what the challenge is for Samson in chapter 14. It's an issue of obedience and just how faithful an individual might be. So let me read for you these passages. We'll work our way through this chapter together if we could. In chapter 14, Samson went down to Timnah. And at Timnah, remember he is from Zorah, or the area in which the Israelites are located. Timnah is getting closer now. It's still Israelite territory, but we're getting closer toward the Philistines. And Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all your people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. And that's been the theme, first of all, of the book of Judges. We haven't gone through the entirety of the book. But the main focus has been everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes rather than what was right in God's eyes. And that is a challenge that you and I face every day as well, that we would be ones that would do what we think is rational, what we think is appropriate, what we think is right. But in the final analysis, we have to ask ourselves, what is right in God's eyes? What would God have us to do? And of course, that raises the question about objective standards. How do we know what God would want us to do? Because the issue of what it is one does and the choices one makes and how one determines right and wrong is as much a challenge for you and I as believers in Messiah as it is for those in the world who don't don't know Messiah and don't recognize him and don't value him. I say that because in the Christian world, 
in the faith world, we can be ones that can use God as an excuse to do what we would like. And while I know that oftentimes people will say, the Spirit of God led me, I prayed about it, and I'm certain this is what God would want, I am oftentimes, oftentimes skeptical of such statements because they can become excuses to do what we want to do. Sometimes we do that, don't we? We want something so bad that when we pray, even in our prayers, we're certain, and maybe not so much like that, but even in our prayers, we're certain God is really instructive. And we have to remember, it's the Word of God that stands as the objective testimony, not what we think or what we're being led to or what we imagine God is uh, saying to us in our spirits. We have to be cautious. I'm not saying He doesn't do that. But I'm saying, let's be real. Let's be cautious about that. And let's be mindful of the fact that the Word of God stands as the arbiter of what is right and what is wrong. Look at Samson. Samson, we don't know all the conversation, but he might have said to his mother and father, look, I've prayed about it. I know this is the woman for me. And, you know, it's interesting in this passage, he never talks to the woman. He never meets her. He just sees her. And he's enamored with her beauty. And that's what's attracting her to him. And we always have to be careful about these external kinds of things And we need to make sure that we're doing what God's Word tells us. Now, if he went to the Word, he would have known better. Because as a Nazarite, he had taken a vow. And in taking this vow, he was one that was set apart unto God. And he knew that he had to marry within the framework of faith. Now, the Scripture is very interesting. This is not a racial issue. It wasn't like there was a problem in Samson marrying a Philistine. The problem was in marrying someone who did not share the values that he shared. Consider Moses. Moses married a Midianite. Moses had married Zipporah, and she was not an Israelite. But it was fine for for him to marry her because she shared in the same values, She acknowledged the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You remember when he did not circumcise his son Gershom? It was Zipporah, the Midianite, who had made sure that their son was circumcised. Why? Because she understood that being in a covenantal relationship with God meant that there were certain expectations one needed to fulfill. And with regard to a male child, he was to be circumcised on the eighth day. And she made sure that that was the case. Consider a man like Boaz, who married Ruth, a Moabitess. Or consider Joshua, some have said, the rabbis tell us, had actually married Rahab. We don't know that. But these are women who are Gentiles that are in the lineage of the Lord Jesus, the Messiah. The point is, it's not a racial issue. It's an issue about one's relationship to God that is of a concern here. And so if we're going to live in obedience, Samson needed to make sure that the individual he came connected to was an individual who shared the same God with him. And she did not. He was only enamored with her beauty, not with anything with regard to her character. And in fact, as time goes on and he marries this woman, this woman continues to uh, sort of press upon him to give 
her the answer to the riddle that he had given to some of the wedding party. We'll talk about that in a moment. But here's another thing. Check this out. It says, Samson went down to Timnah. You know, that's an interesting phrase, too, because every time we generally read about it, it's always a bad direction. Abraham went down to Egypt, it says in Genesis, when a famine struck. And when he goes down to Egypt, the Pharaoh looked upon Sarah, wanted her as his own uh, bride. And then Abraham lies and says, this is my sister fearing for his life. But when one goes down, there's always trouble. You look at Jonah. It said that Jonah went down to Joppa, moving from God, running from the Lord. Here, Samson goes down to Timnah. He's running from his obligation to live as a Nazarite and to fulfill his calling as a judge in Israel to deliver his people. Now, check this out. It says that uh, his family, though, are righteous individuals. They're saying, isn't there a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among your people that you must go to the Philistines? Here's an interesting thing, too. They mention that the, they refer to the Philistines as the uncircumcised. You know, in the scripture, the Philistines are the only ones that are so made reference to as uncircumcised, as ones so utterly contrary to uh, the values of Israel. And yet Samson is moving in the worst sphere possible. It says in verse 4, his father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord For he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. This is one of the most saddest verses in all the book of Judges. That phrase, the Philistines ruled over Israel. They're in Israelite territory. And the Philistines are moving out from the Philistia area. And they're moving into Israel. And the acknowledgement that they are being controlled and ruled by a foreign nation. That the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is now sort of under the scrutiny of the Philistines. And has come under the, um, the oversight of the Philistines. That the Philistines would be ruling over God's people. This is why God had raised up a judge, so that they wouldn't be ruling over Israel. But notice that it says that God, and this is the amazing thing about the Lord, and it has to do with his own sovereignty. What the parents of Samson did not realize is that God was orchestrating all of these events for his own purposes. It's hard to understand that that God was orchestrating Samson to be enamored with this Philistine woman because he wants to bring judgment on the Philistines. It's sort of strange to think about that, that he would move Samson to be attracted to this woman, as it were, though contrary to what God had commanded, because he's looking to stir things up in order to bring judgment on, on the Philistines. It said at the end of chapter 3, that the spirit, or chapter 13, that the spirit of the Lord began to stir in Samson, began to agitate him, began to get him to move in order to bring judgment upon the Philistines. But now the question is how? Well, he's leading Samson, you know, even though Samson's responsibility and he'll pay for it, 
Nevertheless, God is in this moving Samson to move toward the Philistines to open up an opportunity for him to bring judgment on the Philistines. This isn't unlike what happens with Messiah himself. The death of Messiah comes about through God's movement of a man like Judas to betray the master or the Jewish leadership of his day to reject Messiah and ultimately to bring about his death, which would also bring about life eternal. If you read Peter's statement in Acts chapter 2, he makes this very point that God was in all of those events, as contrary as they might be, in order to produce his own will. And so there's something here about the sovereignty of God. And then it's interesting here, it says that he did this for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. So there's a question, what does the he refer to? He was seeking an opportunity. Some think that it refers to Samson, but we have no indication that Samson was looking to bring judgment on the Philistines yet at all. But what we do know is that the Lord was now looking for opportunity to start delivering Israel and bringing destruction on the Philistines. So what happens? In verse 5, Samson goes down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. So now Samson has to avoid these vineyards because as a Nazarite, he can't eat anything from the vine. He can't eat the grapes. He can't drink any grape juice. He can't drink any wine. This is the vow that he's been given from birth to death. And so as they're going through this, toward this, this vineyard, uh, a young lion came toward him roaring. So now what's going on is that evidently, we're not given all the information, but later we're told some things, and this must be the way it happened. They must have come toward this vineyard. And evidently, Samson may have taken a different route from his parents around this vineyard in order to avoid it. And we're told that then the spirit, a, a, a lion comes against Samson. And then we read that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. So this is the second or third reference to the Spirit of the Lord upon him. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. It's almost like his adrenaline kicked in. And the Spirit of God also now just infuses himself within and upon Samson. It rushed upon him, or he rushed upon him. And although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. Now, I don't know how easy it is to tear a young goat either, you know. But uh, he just tore this lion in, in half. I mean, must have taken his legs, grabbed them, and just pulled them apart somehow. But notice... He says that then, and then it says, but he did not tell his father or mother. So obviously his parents are not with him. They went in two different directions. And so now we find out, so why doesn't he tell him? And we don't know exactly, but this may be a manifestation of his humility. He's not telling them everything he's capable of being able to do. But he doesn't tell his parents. And then he goes down and he talked with the woman and found that she was right in Samson's eyes. I think three times that phrase has come up in this section. And then in verse 8, And after some days, he returned to take her. 
And he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. So after some days, might very well refer to about a year. Because at this point, the lion that he had killed had begun to uh, putrefy and become a carcass. So how long does it take for a, an, a lion to just turn into a skeleton? Um, probably about a year or so has taken place in verse 8. And he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion, and there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion, and there was honey. He scraped it out with his hands, and he went on, eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of a lion. So here's a couple of problems. Number one, as a Nazarite, he's not to be near a dead body. He killed the lion. At the moment he killed the lion, he ought to have made his way to the tabernacle and sought to experience the cleansing that the high priest would have provided for him. But he didn't because the woman was right in his own eyes and he wanted to get to the woman rather than to deal with the cleansing that he needed to experience. This was an act of defiance and disobedience. Not only that, but now the second time, about a year later, he comes to the same dead body as a Nazarite. He's not to be near this carcass. And further, he eats honey from it, being a lion being an unclean animal, and the honey being inside this unclean animal would now defile the honey that he had eaten. So now he had eaten an unclean uh, of unclean animal, and now also he is near the carcass. So he's violated his Nazarite vow on two scores already. In other words, Samson is not concerned about his vow. He's not being sensitive to his acts of disobedience. Nevertheless, God's spirit rushes upon him. The grace of God continues to manifest himself or itself to Samson. And so when we get to the end of his life, and as we go through his life, you know, the question is raised, why does he continue to disobey God like this? Why is he insensitive to the decisions that he is making. And I can't help but think that the reason for this, because it's, not, it's oftentimes in my own life, is that when we get away with something that we know that we've done that is wrong, God in his grace does not automatically cut off opportunities for us, does he? Oftentimes he continues to be gracious to us, even though we've known we violated his command or we've done something that we ought not to have done. God continues to shower us with his blessings, and therefore we begin to take those blessings for granted. What we're finding out is Samson is taking God's blessing of his spirit for granted. And as the spirit of God comes upon him, even at a point of disobedience, over time he thinks that the Spirit of God will always be there no matter what he does until we get to the end of his life when he's finally captured and the Spirit of God is not there. In fact, it says that he did not realize that the Spirit of the Lord had left him. And so over time, if we take for granted God's work in our lives, there could come a time when his Spirit would appear, as it were, to leave us. And then the empowerment that he provides is not available to us. That's what Samson begins to experience. Right now, the Spirit of God is still empowering him, even though disobedient. 
But there will come a time for his lack of repentance that the Spirit of God will not assist him as he has done before. So we find that right now he's violating his Nazarite vow. In verse 10, his father goes down to the woman and Samson prepared a feast there, for so the young men used to do. Now, if the feast involved wine, and if he partook of it, he would have violated his vow a third time in this one section. And as soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me the riddle, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothing. And so he tells them the riddle. We get a, an idea of his poetic ability. He says to us, out of the eater came something to eat, out of the strong came something sweet. And of course, there would be no way they could interpret or give the answer to the riddle because this is a personal affair that, that uh, Samson had. And unless they knew what Samson had encountered, they never could have answered this riddle. So what happens? By the fourth day, they're not being able to answer it, so they go to Samson's wife. He's married already. And they, they tell her to entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. It's how wicked and desperate these Philistines can be. By the way, this family will experience this burning in chapter 15. We're not there yet, but they will suffer the same consequence that they hope to avoid. But in any case, Samson's wife then weeps over Samson, continues to tell him, why don't you tell me the answer to the riddle? If you really loved me, you would tell me. And then finally, he does tell her. She wept, verse 17, before him for seven days that their feast lasted. On the seventh day, he told her because she pressed him hard. And then she told the riddle to her people. And the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, what is sweeter than honey and what is stronger than the lion? Again, he responds with a poem. If you had not plowed with my heifer, if you had not uh, gone to my wife, you would not have found out my riddle. And again, for the third time, the spirit of the Lord rushes upon him. He goes down to Ashkelon, which is near the Gaza Strip today, but it's in the territory of the land of Israel. At that time, it was one of the major cities of the Philistines. And he struck down 30 men of the town, took their spoil, gave the garments to those who had told the riddle, and he was angry. And he went back to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. It's just terrible things that emerge in the book of Judges. Here he's married to her, but he then leaves his wife, and he won't come back for about a year. In the meantime, because of his anger, he leaves. The one who is to serve as his best man in his wedding is the one who ends up being married to his wife. Samson had no intention of giving up his wife. But the Philistines didn't care about that. They just gave this woman to this Philistine companion who was serving as the best man, you might say, in Samson's wedding. This is going to get Samson pretty angry too. Samson is a man, if we read his story correctly, he's a man that lacks self-discipline. You know, in 1 Corinthians, I think I shared this last week, but if not, in 1 Corinthians... Paul writes these words. 
He says, do you not know that in a race, all run, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable one. So Paul says, I do not run aimlessly without any sense of direction. I do not box as one beating the air. I don't act like a boxer who deliberately misses his opponent so that I miss him and hit the air. I look to connect so as to win the prize. But he says, but I discipline my body, keep it under control, lest after proclaiming to others the good news, I myself should be disqualified. In other words, we're to be a disciplined people. We're to be individuals that discipline our thoughts, discipline our actions, discipline our, um, how we utilize our bodies. We're to be a disciplined people. Samson illustrates the lack of discipline. He had no control over his senses, so he went to the woman who was beautiful in his eyes. He had no control over his temperament. He was angry, and he couldn't control it. He just kills 30 Philistines just like that to take their garments. And so it's important that we as individuals learn at least this lesson from Samson, and that is the lesson of obedience, the lesson of self-discipline, the lesson of following in his ways that we would not find ourselves as individuals who, after running the race, We find ourselves not reaping the prize that God has for us because we've become disqualified in that we haven't lived righteously and faithfully before him. And one last thing, as I think about this lion, I can't help but think of what Peter writes when he talks about the evil one who goes about like a roaring lion seeking whomsoever he may devour. For Samson, it was a lion that was a distraction to him. But for you and I, the evil one and his emissaries can be a distraction to us as well. And the answer to his plights and the answer to his challenges and his temptations is what the Lord has provided by his grace in salvation full and free. It is by acknowledging Yeshua as Messiah that we can have life everlasting. And it is by living for him and acknowledging him in every way that we will find ourselves reaping the prize that the Lord has for us. We need to be mindful that this passage also reveals two distinctions for us. There's a difference between the gifts of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit. When the Spirit would come upon Samson, he would manifest the gift that God would give him, his strength. But what he lacked was the character that ought to have gone along with it. He lacked the fruit of the Spirit, though he manifested the gift of the Spirit. And so it's important that we don't do that. That while we might manifest the gifts that God has given to us, we want to make sure that it is coupled with the fruit of the character of the Spirit himself as well.
And one of those fruit is reflected in obedience and in following his ways and living up to the vows that we make. Well, let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for this day. We're grateful, O Lord, that you are a God of grace and compassion. How it is that you stir up your spirit within us is a mystery that only you know full well. And we see how your spirit is stirred up in Samson to manifest incredible feats of strength. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would be stirred in our own hearts, that we would manifest the character that is reflective of who you are. So help us, Lord, to walk in your ways. Help us, Lord, to fulfill our vows. Help us, Lord, to value the fruit of the Spirit, the character of our lives. And help us, Lord, to manifest your presence in our midst. So, Lord, we pray that we would experience the fullness of your grace. And if anyone doesn't know you as Savior and has come to experience a genuine living relationship with you, I pray you might move on their hearts and enable them, Lord, to call out upon you. So, Lord, we worship you, we praise you, we glorify your name. For we pray in Messiah's name for his honor and glory. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel with a large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.